What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wadham. I'm Rachel Wadham, and welcome to Worlds Awaiting, helping children and parents explore the world of literacy. Today, we'll be exploring the worlds of a writer's process, financial literacy, and popular music. Our first guest is Charlie Glenn, and we'll chat about her writing process. Then we'll talk with Greg Merced, a financial planner, about what it means to be financially literate. Finally, we'll discuss popular music in the classroom with Brittany May, a music education professor. Before we leave you, I'll step around the librarian's table with librarians from around Utah to talk about children, books, and life at the library. Along with our interviews, we'll have a book review of The Princess and the Warrior and listen to a few writing tips from authors. But before all that, let's take a glimpse into my world. Rachel's There is little doubt that we live in a global society. Because the world has in many practical ways become so much smaller, it is really important for us as human beings to have a better sense of global literacy. For me, global literacy means that people have a strong understanding of the world and how we are all interconnected. While there are lots of ways to develop global literacy, including making friends and enjoying cultural experiences right in our own backyard, to extensive travel throughout the world, it will come as no surprise that I find books and reading a fine way to build global literacy. There are many wonderful books that can extend our global viewpoint. However, it is also important to say that there are some books that are not quite so wonderful. So when extending ourselves into global literature, it is important that we find the best books to assure that we are not inadvertently consuming incorrect information or hidden stereotypes. To help you find those great books, I'd like to recommend the International Board on Books for Young People, or IBBY. This nonprofit organization has people in it from all over the world that are committed to bringing books and children together. The IBBY does amazing work advocating for books from around the world. Among its many programs, it gives out the Hans Christian Andersen Award, which is given to a living author or illustrator whose complete works have made a lasting contribution to children's literature. Among the award recipients will be familiar names like Maurice Sendak and Scott O'Dell. But there will likely be lots of unfamiliar names like Mitsumaso Ano from Japan or Ana Maria Machado from Brazil. There are also national sections of the IBBY, and ours is the United States Board on Books for Young People, which produces each year an outstanding international book list which represents the best of children's literature from other countries that are available in the U.S., One of my favorites from a recent list was a book from the United Kingdom called I Am Henry Finch by Alexis Deacon and illustrated by Vivienne Schwartz, which was a great philosophical picture book that had a lot of contrast and texture in the illustrations. So if you are looking to add a little more global literature to your reading this year, take a tip from Rachel's World and check out the information that the International Board on Books for Young People has to offer. Rachel's World. 
Behind every book, there is a writer responsible for all the little details, world building, and characterization that are loved by many. Every writer has their own unique process to complete such a feat. I love talking to authors about what their individual path and process is. So I'm here in the studio today with author Charlie Glenn to talk about her writer's journey. Welcome, Charlie. Thank you, Rachel. Charlie, you are a writer and you write extensively in a lot of different areas and a lot of different formats. So I am very excited today to introduce you to our listening audience and and talk a little bit about your process and and how you write. So to start, describe to us a little bit is, you know, why is it that you write? What is this Mm -hmm. fundamental passion that makes you become a writer? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. And, you know, the typical response you get from writers is, I write because I can't not write. And uh, it it sounds hackneyed, but it's true. It really is true. Those of us that um, writing is what energizes me. It's what brings me deep joy. There's something about language, about words, about finding exactly the right combination of words to convey not only the idea, but but that sound beautiful when put together as well, that um, that fills me. And it, it's also a way, I think, that I make sense of life. And it's all, you know, for as long as I can remember as a child, I've been fascinated by books and by writing, and, and I've always wanted to be a writer. Um, it's it's interesting because one of my earliest memories, I was probably two or three, um, we had we didn't have a lot of money. My mother was a widow. There were seven children in the family. But my grandmother had been a school teacher, so education was important, and all of her children were readers. So we had books, not a lot of books, but we always had books. But there was one particular book I remember that we had that it had a blue cover, and its pages had the gold gilding. Mm, yes. And I, I would always pull it out and just hold it. And and it really is one of my very first memories, just holding that book. And um, and there were some illustrations inside that just fascinated me. And so, uh, yeah, it's something that um, I really – I can't imagine not writing. That is a true connection, and I, I do hear writers say that quite often. A- another connection that I hear writers say is it helps me make sense of life. Yes. And I like that interesting statement that you made that your writing helps you make sense of life. So does that impact the stories that you tell mm-hmm. and the types of books that you t- try to write? It does. Um, I was thinking about that just recently because most of my books – so I, I write across genres, and um, – when I very first decided I wanted to be a writer, I was a kid who loved books. And so naturally, I thought I would grow up and write books for kids my age, you know. And and I never lost that desire, but I got sidetracked a little bit. When I was in grad school, I, st- I started doing some more scholarly writing. I wrote academic articles for scholarly journals. And, and I loved that too. That was fascinating. I loved the research. I loved the uh, the rigor uh, of all of that, and I and I started writing poetry. So I kind of started uh, and short stories, and you know, at that time in college, I was studying some of the great writers of the world, and so my interest then was a little more um, geared toward writing for adults. Um, 
but I came, I knew, I always knew I would come back to writing for children, which I did. I thought I would write middle grade novels, but I actually started out writing picture books. And the reason why people laugh when I say this, but it's true. It's sort of a sad, sorry reason, but it's the truth. Uh, I started writing them because they're short, because (laughs) (laughs) I had small children, and I did not have, I was teaching at BYU. I had all these young children. I was busy with my church callings. With I was involved in the PTA. I was helping care for my mother who had cancer. I didn't have long periods of uninterrupted time. So I couldn't, the thought of trying to write a novel, you know, (laughs) so I wrote picture books. (laughs) Um, But I, I think that as I look, regardless of the genre, most of what I have produced somehow comes from my own life experiences. And um, I don't, I don't write fantasy. Um, My son told me once when he was about 11, he said, Mom, you know, if you want to make a lot of money, you got to write fantasy. (laughs) He's probably right. He's probably probably right. right. (laughs) And I said, you know, sweetie, that's true. And I and I think it's great. I, I don't even like reading fantasy myself. So I don't I would feel like I I I didn't use the word prostitute myself to him, but I would feel like in a way that's what I was doing. And I don't mean to say that people that write fantasy, I I have tremendous admiration. That's their strength, not yours. And it's not my interest. It's not what I love. So most of my books do somehow come out of my own life experience, things that are important to me for whatever reason. And um, I think people, as they go through life and have experiences – particularly pivotal experiences. There are different ways to process those things. And for me, it's always been writing about them. As you approach your books, is there a different way you approach different types of things? Yes. Like you, how do you, when you write a picture book versus you write a novel versus you write nonfiction versus fiction? Right. Or are there some general principles that kind of encompass that process and what specifics happen for each kind of Mm -hmm. one. Now, I mean, that's a really broad Mm -hmm. question, but I like seeing this vision from writers about what your process is, but how that process changes as you're doing different kinds of aspects. So can you describe that a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. That's actually a really good question. Um, Interestingly enough, the two genres that I write that I think are closest, are most similar, are picture books and poetry. Yes. They are they are yes. so much more similar than people give them credit yes, for. Yes, that's what I absolutely. say. Absolutely. If, if you want to write a good picture book, you have to be a good poet. Yes, that's what I tell everybody. Yes, that economy <laughs> yes. of language, finding yes. exactly the right word, not having any extra words at all. Anything that can be cut out, you cut it out. Um, and with picture books and poetry, usually, still, I start out handwriting them, and eventually, I I move to the computer. Um, with novels or with with anything that involves research, um, I, I'm usually on the computer from the beginning. Although with research, I've got I still have my little three by five cards that I use to write down information and keep track of my sources. It's it's how I learned to do it in high school. It's the way I still do it, and it works well for me. Um, with so I've I my first novel for uh, nationally published novel. It's a middle grade novel for eight to twelve year olds, and it will be uh, it will be released this fall. So uh, and then I I'm working on another middle grade novel right now. Um, so my process for writing a novel. 
Uh, I do usually have, I usually know where I'm going. I know what the, I know my destination. I know the end destination. Uh, and, and I know where I'm starting, but everything in the middle is still fuzzy and blurry. I'm not one that does extensive outlining. Um, I sort of love the process of discovery. It's um, it's kind of like bushwhacking your way through a, a dense jungle. You can't really see ahead of yourself. You, you're just kind of figuring out where you're going to go as you go. And I love that. I love it keeps me interested in the writing process. Uh, even though I know I'm going to end up in Nebraska, for example, I might take all kinds of interesting little side uh, roads and um, – and, and I don't know what I'm going to see along the way. Um, one other thing that I wanted to say that I, I think is important to be said, <laughs> and it's not something you hear a lot from writers. Usually writers say, and I, and I think there's truth to it, they say you have to be very disciplined as a writer. You have to set aside. As you, a lot of writers say, I write from 7 o'clock a.m. till noon every single day. I have never been able to do that. I have never had the luxury of being able to do that because I've always been having to fit my writing in around whatever else I was doing as a student, as a mother with young children, as someone who was also teaching. Um, there never has been a time. So I really have had to just sort of snag whatever snatches of time I could. Um, my first novel that I wrote uh, that was actually published by a local publisher, I wrote it the first draft between the hours of 11 p.m. and 2 a.m., because that's the only time that's it, I had. Yeah. That's the only time I had. That's not sustainable, <laughs> and which is why I moved to picture books, honestly, because I knew you know, I would die if I yeah. <laughs> kept trying to do that. So um, my process is a little more loosey-goosey than, uh, than I would have wanted. Um, my, our last child, we, I have five children, and the last child we launched – um, a, almost two years ago, a year and a half ago, and I thought, finally, it's time. It's time. <laughs> it's time. Yes. And then something else huge sort of happened in my life that completely consumed me. And so I, I don't know if there's ever going to really be a time when I can just devote, you know, a, a good chunk of time during the day to my writing. I don't know. That hasn't seemed to be the way it's turned out for me. And yet I've managed to produce a, a, a lot of writing and, and I have plans. I have lots of ideas. People always say, where do you get my ideas? That's never been my problem. It's where do I get the time? <laughs> the time to where put do the I ideas get the time? on paper. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that, that is so inspirational because I often think some people think to follow your passion, you have to, you know, you have to carve out that time mm -hmm. or, you know, set aside right. things. And, and it is so possible to do something you love yes. just in those moments and snatches of time yes. that and find that kind of success over a period of time. One of the things that I also find very interesting to hear writers talk about um, is what is challenging for you as a writer? And, and how do you face down those challenges? How do you work yeah, through those challenges? Yeah. So as we close up our conversation today, would you address that? What, sure. what are the challenges for you as a writer? And how do you face them? Yeah. So writing is hard for me. 
That's, that often surprises people. I once had a neighbor say to me, I have to write this program. Will you write it? Because it's so easy for you. It just flows. And I thought, uh, nothing flows for me except I was nursing at the time, but, but blood and milk basically yeah. is yeah. what I said. Yeah. Those are the only things that flow. Um, writing is, has always been hard for me. And I'm, and I'm a slow writer. Um, it takes me a long time and I'm the kind of writer that, and I've tried because you kind of get the idea that there's a right way to write and a wrong way to write. And I've come to realize that, no, that's not necessarily the case. You do what works for you. And so I'm, I'm sort of the kind of writer that every word has to be right before I move on. And so it takes me a long time, but when I'm finished, I have pretty much a finished, polished product. And that's okay. I mean, I I think that there is a benefit to just rush writing, or especially if you have writer's block, um, just getting anything out, writing a what Anne Lamont calls a crappy first draft, although she uses a more colorful word, which I won't. <laughs> you know, just getting something out, producing something, because there's nothing more terrifying than a blank page yes. or a blank computer screen that you know you have to fill with words. Um, so that's that sometimes has been a challenge for me, and it's frustrated me about myself that it that it takes me so long to write something. Um, but it's just kind of the way I've come to accept that. Um, finding the time has been a huge challenge for me my entire life and still is. Um, I, I sort of accidentally founded a large nonprofit organization that I'm now the president of. And so uh, this time that I thought I would be able to devote to just my own writing, um, it hasn't turned out to be that way. Um, so, yeah, finding finding the time, finding the space. You know, Virginia Woolf famously said that in order for a woman to succeed as a writer, she needed to have a room of her own. Uh, you know, for many years, I had a corner of my own at one <laughs> point, but um, I, I finally do actually have my own office space now. But for a woman in particular, uh, a woman who has a family and who works, just finding the time and being able, having, being able to respect yourself enough to demand the time that's necessary and to demand that respect from other people as well. Um, that's been hard for me. So, yeah, those have probably been the primary challenges, I would say. I find that so inspirational because I think oftentimes the things that prevent us from doing the things we love are those challenges and we just right. don't we don't want to work through them and seeing people who have worked through them and who've come out with beautiful products and you know considering that you don't have that much time you are very productive <laughs> and you write a lot and I love all of the things that you've written just because you know they're so unique and they offer such a neat perspective so you have added greatness back to the world with your oh, writing thank so you. I, what I truly a kind thing to I say. truly appreciate that so thank you so much for taking your time today to kind of break thank that you, down for Rachel. us and and to see to see how your writing process goes Thank you so much. Charlie Glenn is a children's author. Now, we have story time with Joella Peterson reviewing Duncan Tonadia's picture book, The Princess and the Warrior. This is a fantastic book. I love, 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 love this picture book. And if I could throw more loves in there, I would. So it's an old legend that um, comes from Mexico. And basically what it is, is there's this princess who loves her people and loves poetry and serving her people. 
and all these great warriors and princes come and they want to court her and marry her and put her on a pedestal. But she doesn't really want that. There's one warrior that comes that says, oh, I want to love you for who you are and I want you to stay true to who you are. And she falls in love with him. But of course, her dad doesn't want her to have anything to do with him. So he sends him off to war and says, if you become the champion of this war, then I will consent to having you come back and marry my daughter. So the warrior goes off and he goes to war. And he's doing so well that the Jaguar clan, who they're fighting, decides to be sneaky and treacherous and send back a messenger to the princess saying that they lost, um, that her warrior lost even though he didn't, and give her this potion that will make her feel better because her heart is crushed. So she takes the potion and doesn't wake up. So when the warrior actually comes back, he is distraught because the princess won't wake up. But he promised to always stay with her, so he thinks that if he takes her out into the cool air that she'll wake up. She doesn't, but he stays with her, and that's the legend of how two volcanoes in Mexico have come to be. One volcano lies dormant and just is there, and the other is awake and every now and then has ash and smoke spewing from the volcano, and that is the warrior who is still watching over his princess volcano. Now, that thing that I love a lot about this book It's not just this brilliant um, story that is a classic Mexican folktale, but I also love the fact that the illustrations are done in a classic Aztec type of style. And the thing that's really cool is the um, illustrator will take pictures of things. So like there's a bit of rope that ties the warrior's hair up and the rope is actually details of a real rope. And then it's just put together in pictures or the hair it looks like it's actually details of pictures of hair and um, there's turquoise earrings that the princess wears or things like that so it's not only the style that fits with this Mexican heritage and theme but it also has these little details that are real glimpses as to what real things would be thrown into this illustration so I really like that particular picture book Understanding money and finances is an essential tool for being an adult. While children learn about many different things in school as they grow up, financial literacy is not often emphasized or in some cases even taught. Today, I'm on the phone with financial literacy expert Greg Merced. Welcome, Greg. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, Greg, I am so excited to have you here because you are very passionate about a very important subject, and that is financial literacy. I think that that is something that all of us can understand a little bit more about, particularly as we work with our kids and help them develop those kinds of literacies. So tell us from your perspective, what is financial literacy? Okay, so I could give you the nice textbook definition here, which is you know, uh, uh, some skills and knowledge that allows you to make good, informed financial decisions, right? Or I can give you my real definition of financial literacy, and the way I define it is the skills to get out of my house 
and never come back except to visit. Okay? That's what I want my kids to get, which is I want them to be financially self-sufficient. And those kinds of skills are probably one of the most important skill sets that our kids can actually get from us. But it's becoming increasingly hard to kind of teach them this stuff. Um, And if you don't mind, I'll just kind of launch into that, which is this concept of financial abstraction. And what I mean about that is invisible money. Like we are more and more becoming a cashless society, and we're trying to teach our kids about something that they actually don't see very often. So it makes it pretty difficult, actually, for a parent to do that. Kind of gone are the days where you have a piggy bank on your dresser and you're, you know, putting coins in it. Those kind of things don't really happen anymore. I don't know about you, but my kids very rarely see me with cash in my pocket or coins, you know, in my pocket or, or whatever. And so it makes it very difficult. And so we got to get them to where they can make financial decisions for themselves and get out of our house and never come back. <laughs> I like that getting real definition, and I think you are very correct in stating that the physicalness of money is really disappearing, and even the physicalness of currency is disappearing because we start getting into things like Bitcoin and all of these other kinds of virtual realms of money. So how is it in this new environment that we can help as adults to start helping our kids develop these important financial literacy skills? Right. So that is the that is the big question, right? And I think what it all boils down to is we have to provide experiences for our kids. And I mean that in two different ways. We have to provide experiences for them to learn a work ethic. Um, I think that's increasingly hard for parents as well because, um, you know, we're much more of an urban lifestyle um, a lot of people, a lot of families, a lot of kids, you know, we're all sitting around watching Netflix and scrolling through Instagram. We're not out milking the cow. Um, so there's a lot of um, kind of struggle with that, but we have, to, we have to provide them experiences to actually learn a work ethic. And I am a big proponent of the fact that your kids live in your house. That is where you teach them. So provide opportunities for them to work around your house. Um, There's lots of them. Um, We've got six kids ourselves, and let me tell you, there's plenty to keep them all busy. Um, So it's just a matter of getting organized, getting a program in place to where you can provide some real work experiences for them so that they learn the work ethic. And I think along with work ethic is, you know, working side by side with them helps a lot as well. It's, it's one thing to boss them around. It's another thing to kind of roll up your sleeves and go trim the bushes or mow the lawn or scrub the toilet with them, you know, as, as they learn. So I think that, that that providing experiences for them to learn work ethic is super key. And then kind of uh, alongside that is this ability for us to provide experiences for them to learn how to make good money decisions. And that's not that hard. We just have to give them the tools that they need to start making those decisions. And then we just have to help them a little bit along the way. And 
they're going to make mistakes, and that's okay because I'd rather them make a mistake when they're nine than when they're 29 and having to come once again live in your basement because they've made so many mistakes that they're, you know, a train wreck. So provide experiences, work ethic, and how to make good decisions with money. That's so insightful, Greg. I really like that this financial literacy is so much more than just the physicalness of money or how do we use our money. And it really is about the working and being involved in the types of skills and things we need to be gainfully employed one day or be able to bring financial resources into our homes. So I really like that balance. You also mentioned mistakes. So could you talk a little bit more about that? What is it that mistakes might help our children learn? And how can we, as adults, help our children benefit from those kinds of mistakes so they don't have to come back later on? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, here, here's, here's maybe a couplet here. Good judgment comes from experience, right? We all know that. An adult knows that. And experience, well, that comes from poor judgment, right? So we learn from our mistakes. And there's nothing wrong with making mistakes. And like I said, I think it's much more impactful for a child to make mistakes when they're younger um, than when they're older. So um, I think the, the, the best way to avoid these mistakes is getting a system in place and then sticking with it. I think that's one thing that's just super hard for parents in this kind of turbulent environment where we're trying to teach them about work ethic and money and there's all these challenges and you can't see it and nobody works real hard anymore, et cetera, et cetera. So you gotta, you got to get a system and you got to stick with it. Consistency is super key. Um, and then at the end of the day, we have to strive to be better models to follow, right? Um, I got called out just the other day by one of our kids, and I felt a little silly about this, but, you know, I, I'm always saying things like, you know, oh, you know, we don't have the money for that, you know, kind of thing. And um, and I think a lot of parents kind of say those things and, oh, we can't afford that or we can't do that because of this. Um, and one of my daughters said, well, if we have no money, then why are we buying this or that, <laughs> Right. So she's kind of calling me out, and those mixed messages are not good messages to send to a kid. Uh, we have to be, we've got to be careful with that. We've got to be consistent with our messaging, um, and we've got to explain ourselves a little bit better, right? Well, maybe, maybe it's not that we don't have the money, but we've decided to do this or do that. We've decided to take you guys you know, off to this cabin for the weekend, or we've decided, you know, whatever. We have to explain those things. And and as we're consistent with that, and then we have a system in place with our kids, it, it all starts to gel, and they start um, making that, um, you know, it, it just becomes something that there's not going to be as many mistakes because we're consistent. That is really interesting to me that this whole thing is a process and a system. And it really has to do, I think, with critical thinking and, and explaining to our children, we've made these decisions because of these other decisions and showing them that kind of thought process. So could you maybe outline for us briefly, uh, what would a system or process look like that we could implement in our families to help children learn some of these financial literacy skills? 
Sure. I mean, I, I hope this doesn't come off as a shameless plug, but, I mean, I've been working in this space for a long time, but Busy Kid is, you know, kind of our product, which which is the system, um, and it makes it very easy to do this whole allowance system. And um, we even got to the point where we actually suggest chores based upon a kid's age. We suggest the dollar amount that needs to be paid for that chore. We suggest the allocation or the splitting up of the money because I think it's really important when kids start earning some money that they split it up and they appropriately start allocating their own their money. So, um, and th- those really boil down to three big buckets, the saving, sharing, and spending, right? So that's what we as adults do. We go to work, we earn some money, we save some. It might be in a 401k or an IRA or just a savings account or whatever. We share with charity or church or other things that we find meaningful. And then we spend the rest. I mean, that's, that's reality, right? That's, that's finance 101. So we have to kind of reiterate that with our kids from an early on um, start. So it's not, you earned $10, why didn't you go spend $10? Or I want this specific thing, I'm going to work just long enough to get the money for that specific thing, <laughs> right? That, that doesn't work in the real world, right? So we have to teach them from a very early age that you earn money, but you know what? It actually gets split up, and that's the way the real world works. And so therein is a system that makes it fairly easy for a parent to kind of help their kids with all this stuff that's, that's really tough because, you know, the most recent DICPA study on this, over 90% of parents agree that chores and allowance serve a purpose, then why do we all stink at it so bad? Um, It's just, it's a tough thing, but we're making some big headway on it. Well, I really appreciate your Busy Kid website. I think it is a phenomenal resource for parents out there to get started in this. So we don't quite make as many mistakes or have as much stress with this issue as we do. Thank you so much, Greg, for breaking down some of these basic financial literacies for us. Thank you. Greg Merced is a financial planner and expert in financial literacy. Now, we have authors Whitney Gibbons, Jennifer Nelson, and Julie Berry sharing their top writing tips for young writers. All right, this is my recommendation. In most cases, that young writer has been inspired by a book that they loved. All right, so I'd ask them to get another copy of the book, and they need another copy because this one they're going to destroy. So I want them to take a highlighter and a pen, and I want them to go through that book and highlight everything they loved, a line of dialogue, the way a chapter ends, um, a bit of description. Anything they love, just highlight it. And then go through with the pen and write in the columns why. Why did you love this? Why did this work? Why did that catch your attention? If a young writer were to do that with their favorite book, they would learn more about writing than a dozen books on how to write because it's their favorite. I feel like when people ask artists, like, what is your one piece of advice all the time? Artists will just say practice um, because you can 
want to be better all you want but if you're not actually they call it getting pencil mileage in art and they call it just getting word count under your belt in writing where if having a sense of perfection and wanting to be perfect in the things that you do is good but it's also really bad because if you never allow yourself to do imperfect things like you just got to write a bunch of crap honestly like i have like every writer who is ever successful they have a stack of manuscripts and a stack of just writing that no one will ever see <laughs> but they wrote it and because they wrote that they were able to write better things later and so i think just having pride in accumulating and just producing the practice that you need to eventually become a good writer and if that's not something you enjoy if you hate if you just really do not enjoy putting words on the page maybe a writer isn't best for you maybe you're an artist or you're something that is different creative but you need to have something where you really enjoy the process because it's going to take a lot of process before you have success i think that aspiring writers of any age need to really focus in on reading a lot and writing a lot and that's it. It's it's really that simple. You need to consume a large and varied diet of stories. You just need to be a story muncher and uh, just enjoy it. Just let it let it absorb into you. And then you just need to write a lot, all, all that you can. Just have notebooks, fill them up with ideas, silly stuff, poems, story ideas, songs. Don't worry about what it is. Don't worry about what it's trying to be. Don't worry about excellence. Just have fun. And that's the foundation. You know, there are other things we can talk about with uh, editing and, and critique, but that's really secondary. If you are a book muncher and, and a story scribbler, the rest will follow. Music classes vary from school to school. Some may focus more on learning musical instruments, while others spend more time on music theory. But no matter what type of music class, current popular music is not often seen. Today, we have Brittany May, a music education professor in the studio. Welcome, Brittany. Hey, thanks. I am very excited to have you here because I think you're going to blow our listeners' minds today, <laughs> because you are a huge advocate for popular music and popular culture in our classrooms. And I, I think am. a lot of people are going to say, oh, no, we want the classics. We, and I and I am totally against the classics and literature, so I'm totally on your side. But let's, <laughs> let's get everybody else on our side. So talk Absolutely. about it. Why popular music particularly? Why use it in the classroom? I think it's funny because I, you know, I absolutely should clarify, like, I think all kinds of music should be, be, and you know, children need exposure to everything. So, but poppy music sometimes gets a bad rap. It's totally, it's, oh, it's, you know, it's available. Kids yeah. hear it all the time. They already know it. Or it's too yeah. simplistic. Yeah. Um, people or it's are really not good, right? It's yeah, not good music. Or it's not yeah. quality, quality, which music. by the way, there yeah. is some like, questionable quality music in other styles, That's right? True. And genres too <laughs> yes. that we could go into. Yes, I've heard some questionable classic exactly. music as well. <laughs> exactly. But you know what popular music has to offer our students is it's accessible. So they already can get their hands on it a number of ways and it's already in their ears. So when it comes to trying to help them understand and learn about music and perform music, it's something they're already familiar with. They already they already have those sounds. They already have some pre-existing literacies to work from with popular music, which I think is cool. Um, and then it's relevant. Uh, it's relevant to today. It is the music of 
our people, yes. right? Like yeah. we talk about folk music and we sing all these songs. And and I mean, the Western classical music that, that we all know and love, I mean, that was relevant in their culture, too. That was the music that people were listening to as well. And and so I I like to think about, you know, is is society continues to move forward and, and context changes and technologies change and all of these changes happen. Popular music is changing along with it. Yeah. You know, as new technologies are, are invented, popular music is using them. Yeah. Um, we're disseminating popular music in yeah. totally different ways. It just And so when we're talking about helping kids understand how to navigate these 21st century skills and technologies, popular music kind of lends a hand to yeah. that. Um, but I will say, you know, the argument that it's too simple. Um, I've heard many popular pieces that are not simple, you know, yeah. that have some pretty, I mean, even hip hop and rap, some of the rhyme schemes that those rappers oh, come up with yes. are insane. I mean, it may not be like musically complex, like chord progression complex, no, but, but there's those elements that are but so rhythmically, complex. Yeah. the way that they're putting the words together and the scheme that's happening and how they're connecting, you know, I mean, it's... It's pretty intense. And and then I have heard, you know, uh, like metal, heavy metal music that has like really complex meter, you know, I mean, so, so it true. exists. Yeah. But that said, the simplicity, the fact that they're shorter works, they're only a couple of minutes long, um, really allows you to kind of hone in and for students to be able to learn and reproduce them, especially on some of the cool instruments that are becoming more popular today, the guitar, the ukulele, um, you know, it's just it's, it's just more approachable and accessible. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you could replace everything you just said and instead of music, put literature. And you would You would totally give my perspective on the use of popular literature in the classroom. And that's really sad to me that a lot of people don't envision that, right? They look at it so simplistically or they look at it as, you know, this is a lesser form of culture. Yes. But it's really not. It's it really not. is showing us just a different approach to Absolutely culture and music and all those things we're doing. Yeah. Well, and helping the students understand, I mean, nowadays they are learning so much of our students' knowledge is coming out of, you know, what they're learning from TV and learning mm -hmm. from the internet and learning from music and learning from yes. what they read and helping them understand how those things inform their own belief values and how in turn they can create their own uh, items to share with the world, to share their beliefs and ideals and make those connections. Yeah. And creating is something that I feel like, you know, we're really trying to emphasize it in music education right now. It's, it, we've always emphasized it, but it's one of those things that, you know, it's, it's hard. It's a little scary. It's a little bit chaotic, right, to allow yeah. students the opportunity to get their hands and create something versus having them just prepare a performance. Um, popular music lends itself to that. Yeah. I mean, being able to create new lyrics to a blues uh, harmonic chord progression as you're playing along in ukulele or being able to do some basic songwriting um, and, and get those students, you know, getting our students to really express and make their own music and not just always replicating other kinds of music. And yeah. I think that's important. Yeah. And I think it's more accessible in that way, too, because, you know, there's very few of our students that are going to go out and compose, you know, yeah. a symphony of four movements or something like that. But there's a lot of them that could express themselves with a, a song, a popular song Absolutely. or, you know, a little ukulele tune yes. or something that really brings something of their emotion out, which, again, to me, is one of the reasons to do this, because it develops that kind of social emotional connection yes. as well and not 
and not dividing our students from things that are home and love to things that are school and important, right? This brings it all together and allows them to express themselves in a very fundamental and needed way for a lot of these kids. The other thing that I think is so important when talking about popular music and why it needs to be in the schools is just the nature of popular music pedagogy is completely different how we teach popular music than how we teach you know, an orchestra. Um, orchestra, you've got the director that's up front, everybody's practicing their parts, and then the director kind of, you know, rehearses the groups and the ensemble. But popular music, I mean, Lucy Green is is one of the big um, researchers, music education researchers, who's really, really looked at how popular musicians learn. And they learn by ear, um, not really through Western notation. And they learn in very collaborative uh, informal environments where, you know, the responsibilities and skills are shared. You know, the students are helping each other navigate how to play something and, and they're going back and they're listening and figuring it out and noodling around and rather than, you know, reading it from yeah. a page. And and there's something to be said about those informal vi- environments, yeah. especially as we talk about, you know, the 21st century skills are developing yeah. and what they're going to need to be able to do in the workplace. Well, and-, and that looks to me like, you know, a jazz ensemble, right? Because they play and they move and they do all these kinds of things and so they're playing off of each other and they they do this they make this incredible music because of that Mm -hmm. amazing balance that comes from that absolutely yeah and then there's and then there's just the motivation the fact that the students the student choice they get to pick a song that they want to play and and figure it out and and um and that's really motivating for students to play the music that they love and that they that really resonates with them well and again that social emotional connection that builds that connection for them as a group and then it also builds that connection to you as a teacher because you're validating something that they love but then taking it to a deeper level and saying well yeah this is great i'm glad you love this but let's analyze this let's look at this deeply let's figure out what is this chord progression how does that work and i love that that you brought up the teacher because i think that's the big thing with popular music is the role becomes different the teacher's a facilitator at that point right the teacher is making connections and asking questions and and helping the students navigate things but really allowing the students to kind of drive the learning a little bit and and um and so the the role changes you know how you approach it which is really interesting and learning happens much more exactly when we're passionate about what we want yes. and when we're doing it. And then I think we more are more likely to want to go into those other forms of music, right? Because, you know, if you look at like a song by the Beatles and see how it was influenced by different oh, yeah. cultures of music or even different classical pieces, Definitely. I mean, so much of that influence came from those pieces then you say okay now we're going to talk about this influence and we're exactly. going to study this other kind of and music. that's why it's so important yeah. to yeah explore both sides yeah. of uh, you know all the different genres i mean to make the connections even between popular music that you're hearing and some of the world music styles that are being brought in and and you know classical music influences um they're just it's just full of it so and th- and that's what we need right these yeah. these grand connections exactly that that to me is what learning is all about making connections <laughs> absolutely and that's what it should be focused on yeah. for sure yeah. um and not just yeah learning kind of in this bubble of yeah. you know we want whatever they're learning in music we want it to be transferable yeah. we want them to take that somewhere in the future yeah. and be applicable to their lives so well and i think we forget that sometimes particularly with music the grand history and heritage that comes from this right yes. because you know the stuff we're seeing today 
is grounded in the stuff that <laughs> happened centuries ago, right? Yes, absolutely. They're, they're so connected that making those connections just makes our lives richer and deeper and makes the learning experience more interesting. Absolutely. And, and popular music is so fun because when you're talking about things from back then and the things today, I mean, just really understanding the historical context behind what was driving these musicians to make the music that they were making, you know, what their influences were and why they were singing the songs about the topics they were singing about. I mean, it's right along with what was happening historically. And and same thing today. I mean, even the music we're singing, even though it seems a lot of it kind of fluffy, right, or not, you know, like the messages are kind of whatever. Well, I think that speaks a lot to our culture and what's important in our culture and what's happening and what people value. And, you know, there's still some things to be learned from that. So, yeah. And popular music makes its own culture, right? When you talk about, you know, hip hop culture is because of the music, not because of anything else. Yes. The dress and the all of that kind of stuff came from the musical influence, right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. They, they go hand in hand. Yeah. And and so it is interesting to see, I mean, social groups. Yes. Remember in high school? Yeah. I mean, it was a little while ago, right? The 90s. So it was like, you know, kind of the the, the nine inch nails era yeah. with the, yes, the, exactly. the black lipstick yeah. and the, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. it's like yeah. you see that in, yeah. in the cultural groups yeah. that form based on music yeah. and like interests. So it really is more about society and engaging in our world around us yes. than, than anything. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Brittany, you're for welcome. bringing your insights into the joy of popular music today. Uh, you're so welcome. Thanks for having me. Brittany May is a music education professor at BYU now. Join me around the librarian's table as I talk with librarians from around Utah about children, books, and life at the library. I'm in the studio with Andy Spackman and Letty Camacho, business librarians here at BYU. We're going to take a little change of venue here and and talk about their experiences as parents and, and engaging their children with reading. So to start out, you know, how do you do that? What? How did you do that in your family? How do you make reading an important part of of your family and an important part of what your kids want to do, hopefully want to do with their lives? Jump in, Letty. Tell, tell us some of your experiences. <laughs> I think just having uh, enough uh, books available for them to choose what they are, their interest is, that was something helpful. All my kids are now adults. Um, but they love um, to just go and grab books and, and read them and then talk about them with me. I remember one of the things that I enjoy the most is that they will start writing their own their own stories, and they will start because they all like to draw. They will draw in their stories. So I still have some of those stories that they wrote, and that that was fun. But I think that what made the most impact, uh, my husband was really good at reading with them. I don't think I was as good as reading with them. Um, but uh, just having access to the material, I think it was important. Um, I think that one of my best stories with my son is when he came home and he said, Mom, I had a I had a test and it was open book. It was so easy. I got an A. I said, Oh, that's wonderful. He says, But others were struggling. And you know why? They didn't look in the index. 
<laughs> and I thought you are a librarian son. And so that's one of my favorite stories because I felt, okay, I taught them how to be able to look at information and how to uh, find, how to look at a book and look at the index and, and the table of contents and be able to know about the book before they even read it. So that's one of my success stories, I will say. But they all love to read and they continue to read um, and, and look for information. And it's interesting that they also now we have ebooks that they can read in their tablet and they now have even more access to, to that information. So access to me is very important. Yeah, good point. Yeah, I think, you know, as with everything, you learn by example. And so if they can see their parents reading and that it's something that their parents enjoy and think is important, then, then that's, that's a huge thing. And then also reading together. I love reading some of uh, my favorite books, especially favorite books from my childhood uh, with my kids. And, you know, being able to read, you know, in this day and age, we take literacy for granted, I think. Uh, yes, we do. <laughs> so much so. It, yes. it, it, it used to be, um, you know, in many cases, uh, a mark of... Uh, um, personal pride or, or, or worth that that, uh, that, you, that you were literate. And I don't want to take it for granted. If I, if I take a step back and think about it, then outside of religious things, perhaps learning to read is the most important skill that uh, my kids can ever acquire. Uh, and because of that, it's always been so important to me and to my wife that uh, we've always wanted to teach to ourselves, teach our, our kids how to read. And so we've we've always taught them how to read. And, and in fact, we have six kids and our last just barely finished learning how to read. And she's really excited about it. And being able to, to sit down with them and, and and help them through that process of learning how to read and feeling that, I don't know, empowerment or that joy, uh, especially that now that they can read uh, are some of, you know, some of the moments and times, experiences that I've had with my kids that have maybe, you know, meant the most to me and that, that I'll always remember. And having that experience of helping them learn how to read is, you know, something I w- would never want to, to give up or exchange for anything. I love that because that, that is a special kind of connection. I think most people who have that as part of their family culture do share. I mean, some of my most fond memories as a child are those reading moments, which are great examples of, of successes. But what are some of the challenges you encountered in this process of helping your kids learn how to read or particularly helping them to learn to love to read? What were some of those challenges that you encountered? Learning to read can be hard uh, and frustrating. You know, it's easier for for some people than for others. And when it's frustrating, just like anything, you you, you know, you might want to 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 give up. And especially when you're four years old, it's really easy to say, you know, I don't want to do this anymore. So I'm going to pitch the book across the room or or whatever and walk away from it. Um, and you know, when I'm teaching my kids how to ride a bike. I'm perfectly fine saying, okay, well, let's just forget about it and maybe next year if you want to because you can live your life without knowing how to to ride a bike. Um, 
But learning how to read, we might take a step back and give them some time, but um, we, we, we always want to come back to it. They also benefit from, uh, you know, having brothers and sisters whose, whose examples they want to, to live up to and, you know, that the culture of reading in a family can, can kind of be self-perpetuating in that way. Yeah. Ah, wonderful. Thank you both for sharing your experiences. Thank you. Thank you. I'd like to thank Andy and Letty for joining me around the librarian's table. We've had a great show today. First, we talked with Charlie Glenn about her writing process. Then we chatted with Greg Merced about financial literacy. Lastly, we discussed popular music within classrooms with Brittany May. If you missed any of today's show, or if you want to listen to it again, you can find it on the BYU Radio app or at byuradio.org, as well as on most podcast apps and websites. If you want to know more about what we do here at Worlds Awaiting, feel free to follow our Instagram, at Worlds Awaiting. This has been a production of BYU Radio. Our producer is Cole Wissinger, our student production assistant is Sarah Byington, and our technical advisor is Braden Flint. I'm Rachel Wadham, looking forward to the worlds that are waiting next week. Thank you for exploring with us. Thank you.